Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Burns. How you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. How are you? Well, I'm doing okay. Here we are in another uh, gray fall day. But there's always fun stuff to talk about in the toy industry. And this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host, Richard Gottlieb. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, Kid Stuff PR, and The Toy Guy. And today we're talking to Kim Colmoni, who is SVP Global Head of Design, Barbie, and Fashion Dolls. And Kim, thank you for being with us. We are so excited to talk to you. Oh, Chris and Richard, I couldn't be more excited to be here. This is awesome. I feel so honored to be talking to the two of you. That's for sure. I mean, I'm a toy nerd. I like live and breathe toys. And, you know, to be with the the two of you who have, uh, you know, such toy knowledge. Listen, if I weren't so excited, I'd be intimidated. That's uh, that's oh, how it feels. Oh, I don't think you're intimidated. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Oh, my gosh. Years ago, I was doing a consulting job for somebody and they, they took me out to lunch and they said, well, you know a lot about toys. And I said, well, I don't know much about anything else. And they said, that's okay. We don't want you for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, you know, I'm right there with you these days. I mean, if, when I think about the amount of time I've been in the toy industry, I'm like, wow, I, I better be good at this and make an impact because it's I pretty much dedicated my life to it. So here we are. That's- I actually had a I actually had a moment when that happened. I was going to originally going to be an English literature professor. And, and then one day I thought, you know, you're not going to be an English literature professor. You better get, you better be good at this. (laughs) Wow. I I so relate to that, Richard. I, you know, when we get to the part where we start to talk about my background, I cannot tell you how much I relate to what you just said. Why don't you tell us about your background? Yeah. So, um, I grew up in new Orleans. I, um, was the first in my family to go to university. And I, you know, when I was in high school, I thought I was going to be a child psychologist, a journalist, or a politician. And I joke now that I'm a little bit of all of those things um, with toy design as the, <laughs> as like the overarching element of what I do. But I took a, my first art class uh, when I was in high school and it changed the course of my life. And so I went on to study interior design at Louisiana State University, then ended up moving to California to study textile design and opened my own business after I graduated from FITM uh, with a degree in textile design. And then for three years, I had a textile design studio in downtown Los Angeles with a friend who I went to school with. And then we closed the studio. She went on to study architecture and I needed a real job. I had to get a real (laughs) company on my resume. And I ended up at Mattel in a temp position as a textile engineer for nine months Uh, covering two back-to-back maternity leaves. I had never heard of toy design as a career in my life. First of all, being the first to go to to university in my family, you know, I didn't have a role model in the, certainly not in the design industry, but within big corporations. My dad was a barber. My mom was a secretary to a psychiatrist. And so I was charting this territory in university and certainly in university around design on my own. And so I was like, wow, I need to really have some some cred on that resume. And when I walked into Mattel and I had this position as a textile engineer and I saw this unbelievable field of artisans and designers 
my mind was blown. And all of a sudden I was like, how did I not realize that toy design was a job? You know, and where did I think toys came from if I didn't think that they were designed? Like they aren't hatched from toy <laughs> eggs. Like these, you know, somebody has to make things. And no, they are not, Richard. I know it's hard to believe. And I hate, you, you, you know, I don't want to overstep your parents and telling you how toys work. But <laughs> yeah, no, they're not, they're not hatched from eggs. And I was just so blown away. And I knew that this was a place I wanted to be. And hopefully at Mattel, but definitely in this industry. And so- I spent my nine months in my temp position trying to scout what I was going to do and how I was going to get in there as a designer. And thankfully, Cassidy Park, who you may know, Cassidy hired me in as a designer on Barbie. And then that was in 1999. And the rest is history. In case I forget to say it later, I just have to say I am so incredibly grateful to the people who guided me along the way. You know, I mentioned Cassidy, Evelyn Mazzocco. I, you know, my my heart and soul are in debt to her. She created such an amazing opportunity for me to grow. Larry Clayton, uh, now with Chris and Richard Dixon and all of these people that just really have shown me the power of what a career in toy design can mean. So you oversee Global Barbie, and everybody knows I am a tremendous Barbie fan. And I think that when you look at Barbie in 1959, she didn't have a lot of options. She was a teenage fashion model or she could be a bride. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to 2020, she's had 130 plus careers. She's done all of this stuff. How do you see Barbie's role right now in a changing culture? I mean, that's a really big question. And I see- I know, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love big questions. Um, it's just, there's a lot to unpack in that. So I'm going to try to answer it as briefly as possible. And I will say Barbie's role in a changing culture is significant. And that's a very short answer, but it says a lot. Because when you have a platform like Barbie has with 99% awareness in the world, and you know that you are welcomed into the lives of children and families and the hearts of fans with the decades and decades and decades that Barbie has been around, that's a responsibility that we who are humbled and honored enough to lead this brand during this chapter take very seriously. So the choices that we make, and I'll speak for myself through the lens of design, the choices that we make right now are important, you know, and what we put into the world besides the fun and the innovation and all of that stuff, which by the way, in and of itself is, is super powerful. When you're talking about a doll, the choices that you make, especially in our topic of diversity and inclusion, really make a difference. Because if a kid can see themselves reflected in a brand like Barbie, that's the gateway to getting them all the good stuff that comes from playing with it. And that's creativity and imagination and compassion and all these things that come besides fun, because I never want to leave fun out, that come from playing. But first, they have to connect with the brand. The literary critic, uh, Leslie Fiedler, once said that a great novel was great because its characters had a life of their own outside of the book. Mm -hmm. so as an example, Tarzan exists outside of the books in The Wizard of Oz. And it seems to me that at some point, Barbie became more than a toy, that it took on its own life, for good or ill for the company. I mean, there's been times you, you guys got bashed. How do you manage 
a brand that has become an, a cultural icon and totem, and that is truly beyond your control in many ways. The first thing you do is that you realize that Barbie doesn't belong to you, that Barbie belongs to the world. And you really approach everything that you do through that lens, which means that you have intentions for the brand, right? But really, the experience of the brand happens intimately between whether that's the kid or the fan or the parent. That's a personal relationship. And you respect that personal relationship. The other thing that you do is you listen. You listen to the world and you listen to those consumers who are your fans, the kids who are enjoying your brand, and you respond accordingly. Because the key, I think, to the reason that Barbie's been around as long as she has is evolution. She doesn't stay the same. And she really is a reflection of what's happening in the world. And she's a reflection of the people who love her. And so we have to help as the creators of the brand, we have to help that manifest. One of the things I like to say is there have been billions of Barbie dolls sold over the years. No two are exactly alike because every child, every Barbie player brings that doll to life as a reflection, not just of what their perceptions are, but what they're feeling at that given moment. So Barbie may not be the same on Wednesday that she was on Monday. How do you design to that sort of breadth in terms of how everybody's going to relate to her differently. This may sound like a cop-out on that question, but I don't worry about that necessarily because the part that you're talking about is the soul of that individual skew that just got sold to that kid. And the kid puts the soul in the doll. All I do is deliver the, the doll itself and the play patterns and the variety and the diversity and the soul comes from the kid. And so that's actually the most exciting part is when you meet a kid who has one of the toys that you have and then you see all of the energy and love and uh, stories that they pour into it. That's the height of the success in my in my job. That's the height of my joy is once that kid gets a hold of that doll and then they bring it to life. Let me give you a perception uh, that I have on uh, the 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 similarity between action figures and fashion mm. dolls. Love this conversation. And that they are both implements for acting out really the fears and anxieties of becoming an adult. So for boys, the, the, the overriding thing is, is death and dying. Uh, and so a lot of, of action figures about battle, uh, that sort of thing. For girls, I think it's about uh, acting out themes of sexuality and socialization that they're going to confront, really, when they become tweens and tweens and adults. And, and do you think, does that hold water, that notion that these are, are tools for acting out themes of adulthood? I do think that they're tools for playing out the roles that you will have when, when you grow up. I will say that not only girls play with dolls and not only boys play with action figures. And so I do think it's important for us in the toy industry also, especially as we talk about diversity and inclusion, to open up who the toys are for. In general, we could say that it's mostly girls that play with dolls or mostly boys that play with action figures, but on this journey to being more inclusive as an industry, 
I love the idea of thinking about it more through a lens of storytelling experience. And in that sense, I would say that action figures and dolls are very similar. They're also interesting. They're roughly the same size. They both come with accessories. They're personifications. That, you know, they are uh, look like human beings on some level, right? Some some may look less like actual human beings than others, but there is this. And I think that what that does, it's almost becomes a totem for projection of self onto this inanimate object. And what that does, and, and I speak from personal experience as a kid, I was a huge Barbie girl, right? I loved, I loved her. I lived out my dreams and I was an only child. So I did spend a lot of time playing alone. That imagination time and that time of immersing myself in worlds and projecting what it would be like when I had my house or when I was grown up or, or you know, working out um, narratives that were appearing in my appearing in my life, those moments were so important. And when I reflect back on them, they feel, um, they feel deep. They're very deep inside of me, my recollections of those experiences. One of the things that Richard and I talk about from time to time is that what we play with as kids is something that turns into who we are when we grow up. Richard talks about his favorite toy as a child being a typewriter. I love <laughs> puppets and anything that I could do that, that, that put on a show. Uh, a good friend of mine who I worked with many, many years ago, Kafka, costume designer Greg Barnes has designed for Barbie and for him that was a dream come true uh I think he designed uh, Barbie and Fairytopia the costumes the costumes for that and he's gone on to win multiple Tony awards and so how do you see the role of Barbie in fostering healthy imaginative childhoods I wish every single person on the planet regardless of gender spent time playing with dolls and I would hope that it would be Barbie Barbie's better than therapy sometimes. Like, you know, you, <laughs> you can, when you get in there and you really start to like play out those scenarios that are impacting your life. I mean, by the way, I'm not a doctor and that's not an official statement. So <laughs> don't, don't cancel your therapy appointments, toy people out there. But yeah, but do pick up a Barbie doll and try to work some of it out on your own. We just released a study in partnership with Cardiff University and speaking very casually, wow, like, all the stuff that I felt like I knew instinctively that was amazing about doll play now is proven out through neuroscientific data. We know more and now as designers about what's going on in the mind of a child when they're playing with dolls like Barbie. And what's happening is they're building empathy and they're building compassion. And by the way, regardless of whether they're playing in a group or alone, those parts of the brain are lit up through doll play. If there's one thing our world needs right now and our businesses need right now is more compassion and more empathy and more creativity. And so in the soundbite, Barbie's healthy. <laughs> like, like Barbie's good for you. Barbie's Barbie can be broccoli. Like let's go. <laughs> more, let's let's have more doll play in the world because we we need leaders and we need people in the world that are developing more empathy and compassion and, and those important social skills. Well, let me, let me just grab a hold of what you just said. There, it's, it's very important. Just thinking about the fact that I, I feel like Mattel more than the toy industry in general has been more overt in its support of Black Lives Matter, transgender. You know, Mattel has a long history of, of uh, leading in diversity and inclusion in a way that other companies don't, as you're referencing, Richard. So, you know, I, um, I 
don't um, propose to know exactly why. I'm just really thrilled that that's the case and that that's where I get to work every day. It is important to me that the values of the company that I work for align with my own. And it's important for the world that toys also are reflective of, of values that are inclusive. I want to ask you something that that I also asked Richard Dixon, and he gave a brilliant answer. But uh, I think that when I no start, pressure. no pressure, <laughs> <laughs> nope. But I, but I want to ask you specifically, specifically. It was the brillantest answer we ever had. <laughs> Listen, I'm okay with a number two. So uh, no, no. I'll be a second to Richard Dixon. Sure. But but I didn't ask him specifically related to Barbie. So when I started in the toy industry, people always said that we don't lead the culture; we follow the culture. We reflect the culture. But as we've seen content change, as we've seen how kids consume information change, I think we're at a point in history where the toy industry has an opportunity to actually lead the cultural conversation. And that's not without risks. You guys did Creatable World, which was non- gender specific. You've done Fashionistas, which is different body types, different skin tones, different hairstyles, different costumes. Where is the opportunity to lead the conversation right now and specifically as it relates to barbie how do you help support parents and the culture in broadening children's awareness and sensitivity i think it's about looking for the opportunities to be available to help guide or participate in teachable moments for kids and so in particular with content for Barbie, I will point to the video that just went viral recently where on Barbie Vlogger, where Barbie and Nikki are in conversation around racism. And it opens up with, these conversations are hard. Stuff like this is hard to talk about. I think when we lean into being honest and truthful and vulnerable with the voices of our characters or brands that creates a connection between parents and kids. Are we leading the conversation? I'm not so sure. I think we're participating in it and we're creating tools and opportunities that help parents perhaps open up a dialogue in a relatable way with their children where they may be uncomfortable in some of those spaces otherwise. So I would love to think we're leading it, but we're all existing in culture simultaneously. And so I feel like we're participating with our consumers and providing opportunities to help them in their own lives and, and families. You earlier in the conversation said that Barbie is ever evolving and has evolved since the beginning, but there has to be, I would think, some essence of Barbie. Yeah, I would say that Barbie is an inspiration in her essence. So when you think about this, there is, this is, the, by the way, this is the long, longest debate conversation we have on the planet. <laughs> is it Barbie or is it Barbies with an S, right? So is she like a Lego and Legos. Right. Is she a character with a defined personality or is she an open-ended canvas for exploration and reflection? And the answer is yes and yes. <laughs> because... The child's brain views Barbie and the experience of Barbie very differently than our ordered adult brains need to experience Barbie. And so, and when I say that Barbie is, in the beginning, when I said that Barbie is inspiration, what doesn't change about Barbie is the purpose of the brand. 
right? And the DNA and the brand to inspire limitless potential in every girl, or you could say in every kid. So, and as long as girls are underserved, I think it's important that we reference girls, but I also am very passionate about acknowledging that Barbie is for everyone, not, not just for girls. So going back a little bit deeper into your question, I think we have an opportunity to do both. Obviously, when we create a character that shows up in content so far, she's been white, she's had blue eyes, she's had blonde hair, and she shows up with a family structure. Within our doll line, Kids can choose to tell that one story that is reflective of Barbie as a character, or they can create endless stories on their own. You know, when you watch a kid play with Barbie, that doll may be named Barbie, or it could be named Kim, it could be named Susie, it could be named anything, right? And it might change, that doll's name may change within one play setting. So while we get really hung up <laughs> as grown-ups and toy people on what does that mean, ultimately the people who pay, pay me every day, which are children who pay my bills, they, um, they don't care as much as we care about those sorts of things. They can be watching Dreamhouse Adventures with a very defined character of who Barbie is, get up, go sit down to play on the floor and be exploring a million different versions of, of her identity. I think you bring up a really important point. Barbie is not only a doll and a plaything and a friend, but she's also a lightning rod for the culture. I'm constantly explaining to people that your adult perception is not how a child understands things. I can remember being embroiled with the Christian Science Monitor when the Tokidoki Barbie came out and saying, it's not like Barbie's coming over and dragging your daughter down to the harbor and forcing her to get a tattoo. It's This is one aspect of pretty. How do you negotiate as brand management that play aspect, but also the larger cultural aspect of it? And I've talked to your PR folks and they're rolling their eyes over the things that people come up with. Does that actually, though, on some level, reinforce the value of the brand and the culture? I'll answer the first part of your question, sure, which how sure. do we do it, right? How do we do it? We do it with a lot of deep conversation and a really, and, and I'm, and I'm not saying that flippantly. It's, it, we take it really seriously. You know, there's a, there are fine lines that we have to walk. That's okay. That's part of the gig, right? And you don't, you don't have a brand like Barbie that's been around for over 60 years when most toy brands, a successful toy brand lasts three to five, right? So we have a lot of responsibility and we welcome it and we're grateful for it. So we do spend a lot lot of time talking about what can we do what what is okay for the brand what where is that fine line but how do you manage the dichotomy between adult perceptions of barbie and what a child perceives because these are really two very different audiences and when people attack barbie it makes the headlines we're aware, you know, we joke about that anything that Barbie does can make a headline like without, you know, we, we don't do anything that we do in a vacuum, you know, in, in the documentary Tiny Shoulders, there's that moment where I said, like, I'm very aware that the world is watching us. That's every day, you know, that that is part of part of working on a brand like Barbie. You know, we use a lot of litmus tests for ourselves. Have fun without making fun is something that we say a lot. Making sure that any theme that that we touch on, even when we're targeting adults, we have to remember that we're going to end up as that Hanukkah gift or under a Christmas tree. And so ultimately, 
Barbie is a, a child's toy. And so the decisions that we make, the partners that, that we partner with, we, we think those things through very carefully. But we also know that the brand can be used by people on the outside for their own missions, their own headline grabbing moments. We're aware of it. And we have the best PR team in the world to help us manage through that. And so it's part of it's part of our journey on the brand that we're on. And we accept it as, as a, an element of what we do every day. I'm always relieved when I hear controversy about Barbie. And, you know, that sort of exists over in the sort of evening news, whatever controversy. But then I look at the kids and I watch it literally go over their heads because you haven't in any way compromised that relationship. So the social noise exists over here, but really that child heart-centered play still pretty much stays cordoned off from any of that. Exactly. I mean, that, that was the other thought that I had, which is the way that we deal with that is we keep doing what we're doing. And as long as what we're putting out there is staying true to our DNA and our intention and our mission to be in service to kids and in service to girls through the brand uh, holistically, whether that's through toys or content or philanthropic work, all of that. As long as we're still doing and in alignment with what um, our intention is, then the rest of it is cultural conversation. And and that is the interpretation of of the person who was either saying or or doing that. And that's a unique factor of a 62-year-old brand because you've now got three generations who grew up with Barbie and had a relationship with it and on some level passionately cling to their Barbie from their childhoods. And that informs their adult perception as well. Of course. Listen, when we made the changes on Barbie's body back in 2016, I would say there's going to be collectors and there's going to be purists who are not going to love what we're doing. People who love us still don't always love everything we do. And so it's not just the people that don't like the brand that often have commentary, but it's also people who who love us or may not be a fan of the direction that we're taking it. And that's okay. You know, it, it's okay. That's that's the beauty of a brand like Barbie. And it's the beauty of a portfolio like Mattel's in, in toys, I mean, and in, in dolls in particular, there's something for everyone, you know, and if you don't like this one, then buy the other one. We did a series of conferences called Girls and Toys, and uh, this was about 10 years ago. And the, the, the heart of it was the question, do the toys that we give girls to play with have an impact on the uh, professional and academic choices they make as adults? And one of the things I came away with after the research I did around that was that gender, when it, when it comes to play, that girls do tend to nurture more around one end of the spectrum, nurturance play, boys around the other end of the spectrum, uh, more violent, aggressive play. But it doesn't mean that all girls want to play one way all the time. It doesn't mean all boys want to play one way all the time. Is it your aim to make Barbie a girl's product, but accessible to boys who choose to play with it? Or is the mandate to try to reach out more aggressively and include boys who want to play? I would say that we are here to welcome anyone who wants to play with Barbie the way we design Barbie. So I, you know, I I uh, spend a lot of time thinking about this with our team, and I say the boys who love Barbie love Barbie. 
So I don't think we need to change Barbie to access boys, but we do need to welcome and include, and I think you, the word you used is exactly right, a spectrum of Barbie lovers. I'm not here to convert anybody who's not into Barbie dolls. <laughs> you know, if you're not into it, play with something else. But I do want to create a landscape creatively within the Barbie brand that is expressive and inclusive of those who do love us. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting for some brave retailer to put Barbie and and action figures in the same department and, and just what happens when you run that Barbie doll from left to right and that action figure from right to left? What goes in the middle? And the day that that happens, we'll develop a whole new product category that doesn't exist yet. But I really think they belong in the same department. And I wonder if you felt the same way. Yeah, I think that they're storytelling figures. And I would love to see all of our, listen, I'm going to be bold. I would love to see all of our retailers not genderize any of our toys. You know, when we talk about launches like Creatable World that really sought to create a product that served in a space that wasn't existing before, that was part of the intention, just based on observing kids in general and how they played and what they were looking for. They wanted to be in charge of a creation of a storytelling figurine that they could turn into whatever character expression that they chose to. So, you know, I'm I'm right there with you. Like, let's do it. Let's go, let's go storm a store and create our own aisles, Richard. I think Mattel took a pretty bold gesture in coming out with its creatable world, which is a, a line of dolls that are frankly gender fluid. I'm interested not in the consumer reaction, but what was the buyer reaction uh, when you first brought this to to the different retailers? I think it's a great question, Richard. You know, we knew with launching Creatable World that it would open up dialogue and conversation. Anytime you're doing something new and different that hasn't been done before, you know you're going to be in conversation with people about it as you bring them on the journey. I will say our retailer conversations were easier than I expected them to be. It doesn't mean that every one of them was the perfect picture of of my preference of how they would go, but the response was very positive. And I think the reason the response was positive is because when you play with the toy, you realize this isn't about politics or opinions. It's about great play and that it's a an amazing product. And when you got it in the hands of retailers, just like when you got it in the hands of kids, it's almost an irresistible item to play with, you know, creating characters and, and getting in there. And, you know, when you, I, I don't know if you've played with it yourself, but changing out the clothes and the wigs and the styling, it's just fun to do. And so I, I was actually pleased with the support that we got from our retailers. One of the things I thought about it was that we as adults thought of it as gender fluid, but children didn't think of it in that way because that's a highly sophisticated concept for a core doll player. In fact, kids don't even begin to gender differentiate till about four, that they start to know I'm a boy, you're a girl. Again, it was one of those very high level cultural conversations that kind of left the kids, well, we're over here playing. We're just having a good time with all of this. You guys go talk over there and and say whatever you want to say. You couldn't be more right, Chris. <laughs> like, seriously, like, you know, a, a, the beauty of Creatable World 
and something that really touches my heart is that kids can find themselves in that doll line. And perhaps a child who hasn't seen themselves reflected in a doll line previously will, will, will find themselves there. And kids that see themselves, so call it like a cisgendered kid who already knows their style or, or, and also knows their gender identification, who's used to seeing themselves represented in product and in media, they'll find themselves there too. And the play is what leads with something like Creative World, with a product line create like Creative World. Yet it still is in service to communities and, and folks that may be underserved by toys, which is why I think it's such a, a beautiful line. One of the fun things that happened when Fashionistas came, first came out was we were playing with a bunch of them with a bunch of bunch of kids. Actually, there were some boys and girls. And one of the, the girls picked up a doll and I said, well, why do you like that one? She said, because she's got blue hair. My mom would never let me have blue hair. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, let's let's talk about taboos being a, a driver of sales. <laughs> <laughs> God bless taboos. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not even it's not even taboos. It was like I'm I want to express myself through this doll and my mom won't let me dye my hair blue. So yeah. the doll yeah. with some blue hair in it really reflects a part of me, which is so exciting. Yeah, I mean, and that's what I mean. I don't mean like cultural taboos. I mean like no-nos from parents, right? So like you're not old enough to access that yet, but now you can access it, or if your parents say you aren't, now you can access it through your doll. And that's exactly those things that we were talking about before. Trying on a role, trying on style, trying on different aspects of who you are and who you may want to be in the future. That's what dolls allow you to do. And Richard, you know, I wonder if that's, when, you know, when we're talking about the action figures and doll conversation, it's like when I, I haven't worked intimately on action figures, but, you know, what's the wish fulfillment in action figures, just like there's a wish fulfillment in fashion dolls, right? You're living out a life of fantasy or, or a life but, that you But I think you're also living out some anxiety. Yeah, that's, that could be true. Yeah. And there was a wonderful article by a mother who, um, I guess because of COVID was forced to, to stay home with her daughter and she was overhearing her daughter play with her dolls and the doll was acting out a situation apparently that had happened to her in which bullying by other girls and uh, the dolls gave her an opportunity and the mother said how important it was to listen to your children while they play because you can learn an awful lot about yeah. um, what's going on in their lives. I mean, I, th I think that's definitely true. We've had some work that we've done on Barbie around watch her play, right? And so we have videos of parents when they really observe their children within this world of Barbie play, it's sort of like the psycho-emotional things that come out. And I think you're right. I think you know, kids work through conflict and work through complex issues through doll play. And probably action figure play as well. Absolutely. We heard we have a friend who heard her daughter, who was playing by herself, say to her doll, "Oh no no no, please! I'm much too young to be a rabbi." <laughs> <laughs> that may be one of the best lines <laughs> that I've ever heard. That's amazing. <laughs> So I want to ask you a little bit about research and design, because Barbie is first and foremost a fashion doll. And 
you are working 18 months, two years out, basically. Yeah. How yeah. do you know? Because you're usually pretty right. When I see the holiday, Barbie, I think, well, that's an interpretation of something that was on the runways earlier this year. So, so how do you guys get the inside track on that? And what kind of research do you do to <laughs> figure out what the themes are going to be? Oh, well, we're just magic. Oh, that's OK. How well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, and you know, we, yeah, exactly. No, you know, we are. Let me start before we even get to the research part. Let's start with the design part, because that's the, the team that I lead. I would say we are cultural sponges. So we spend, people ask me the question all the time, where do you get your inspiration? And I'm like, well, I wake up in the morning and I open my eyes and I live my life. And there is the inspiration. Ah. So, you know, you really, we really are these, I will speak from, from personally, I absorb everything I possibly can in pop culture from, you know, subjects that interest me to ones that don't. And then there is an alchemy process where you sort of put all those things through the filter of the toy world and then you take it one step lower and you put it through the filter of the Barbie world and you look for patterns. And so you sort of get predictive in what's gonna come next based on patterns that you're seeing in, in society. We also tactically have enormous resources, whether that's trend forecasting resources through fashion. We have our, our internal um, consumer insights team that just feeds us more reports sometimes than I can even read that have so much insight into kids and par parents and trends and all of those things. And then we really, we sit down and, and we call through it and we look at where Barbie or another brand that we're working on has been and where we want to take it. And then what do we think is going to be resonating with, with our parents and kids by the time we get 18 months to two years ahead? So I appreciate you saying we're mostly right. I really, I really do, because some of it is, is looking into that crystal ball and trying to predict where we're going to go culturally. Kim, have you guys ever taken a look at the fashion choices you give your girls at a particular moment in time? And to see if what you gave girls in 2010 shows up in fashion choices as when they become teens in 2020. If you take Vogue magazine and you line it up from 1959 to today, and you take the Barbie line and you line it up in juxtaposition to the covers of Vogue, you will see a direct correlation between what Barbie looks like. And by the way, even beyond fashion, right? You'll see it in makeup trends and hairstyles, all of those things. They are lined up almost perfectly. And it actually is a tool that we use when we look back in our history, if we're trying to course correct, there are moments when I can identify when we maybe got off track with the brand of being reflective of culture. And you will see that also reflecting in how well the brand might be doing. So when we lose sight of what's happening in cultural currents, whether that's in fashion, society, any anything, that's when we are in our best. And so we have to stay on our toes. And like we were saying before, predictive of where our families and kids are going to be and fashion is going to be in order to stay on track. So it's a fun exercise and we do it all the time and we use it as a tool during our own evolution process from through design. 35 years ago, Mattel 
debuted an iconic commercial that basically said, we girls can do anything. And that was a a real inflection point in the brand. It really soared up from, from there. You're still saying we girls can do anything and you're doing more and more and more for more and more girls. So Kim Colmone from Mattel, thank you so much for spending this time with us and talking to us about Barbie. It's a conversation we hope will continue for many years to come. Chris and Richard, thank you so much. This was so fun and the time flew by. I appreciate being here so much and I appreciate you producing this for for our industry and for fans and just for our, our little toy family around the world. So thank you so much for having me. And now we reach the part of the show that we like to call the end cap where Richard and I talk about ideas and issues that are facing the toy industry right now and may have an impact on sales. And Richard, you've been doing some research on it and all these different lists out there. What are you thinking? I'm always fascinated by the various hot toy lists that come out this time of year. These are toys that the retailers have bought heavily on. These items that make the list aren't necessarily the best toys, but they're certainly the toys that uh, these retailers are willing to put their money behind in terms of inventory and advertising. And I studied the, the three American hot toy lists, Amazon, Walmart, Target. But I also took a look at the three British hot toy lists, those from Hamley's, Tesco, and Smith's, which are major retailers in the UK. I just wanted to kind of review with you the whole concept of hot toy lists and, and uh, get your take on a few differences and similarities between the different lists. What's your thoughts on these hot toilets? The hot toilets have become a staple of Q4 shopping really since the 80s. And when we first saw the Cabbage Patch Kids and the Slugfest in the aisles of Kmart over Cabbage Patch Kids, Everybody's always wanting to know what's the next Cabbage Patch, what's the next Tickle Me Elmo. So it's become a great marketing tool for a lot of retailers. Now, these guys are smart. They, they've placed their bets, but they also are getting an extra bump by having these on hot toilets. And they wouldn't embarrass themselves by picking things that aren't going to sell. They are going to sell. But one of the things I've always said is the hot toy is only hot if it's hot for your child. So seeing a hot toy list might be a good one, two day story for raising awareness. But if a parent isn't shopping for it, they're probably not going to care. When I look at 2020, we're in a rather unique position. It is both an election year, which tends to push the toy buying season till later. And the toy lists all came out earlier because everybody wants to be the first out with them. And we've got the pandemic. So on one level, you're going to see later toy buying. On the other hand, you're also probably going to see increased toy buying as parents try to compensate for the lack of other celebrations. So the hot toy lists are a guide, certainly for prompting people to think about things. So I think it can be a very positive tool. I just don't think it's definitive. There are a lot of hot toys that didn't make anybody's list out there and are going to do just fine. Chris, I noticed that Target had a, a 40 items. I think Walmart had 25. And when I look at the, the list, I think it's interesting that they only uh, picked the same item three times. And that was Hasbro, Beyblade, Burst Rise, <laughs> Hypersphere, uh, the Fisher Price, Little People, Launch and Loop, and the Na 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 Ultimate Surprise. Now, along with the fact that there's a lot of words... <laughs> Why do you think Target and Walmart happen to agree on these? I mean, I think they try to avoid each other as much as possible, don't they? If they're on the hot list, none of those are 
exclusive to any of the retailers. But on some level, those are also all pretty safe bets. Beyblade is hot. It's very immersive play. It's battling tops with strategy. Not on a surprise has adorable dolls, beautifully designed with a unique unboxing. And of course, Fisher Price usually does well with their towers and their loops and things that really foster great preschool play. So those are all pretty safe bets. And I would imagine that for the right consumer, they'll all do very, very well. Chris, when I looked at the UK, I found that uh, there was only one item that the UK retailers carried and the American retailers carried, and that was uh, the LOL Surprise Clubhouse playset. I think this is another one that's a fairly safe bet. Last year, the LOL Surprise OMG house, which was about $159, did incredibly well. This one is about $50. It's got all kinds of different activities, and it comes with two exclusive dolls. It was an item that was the only item that made all three UK lists and didn't make any U.S. list, and that is the Lego Super Mario starter course. And I'm just surprised uh, nobody in the U.S. uh, chose it as a hot toy. I was a little surprised it didn't make a lot of those lists as well. It depends on where it's being carried. It could be at the Lego stores. It could be online. It could be through Nintendo. Well, I know it's through all of those, but I do think it's a really, really creative, immersive toy, and that they have married the two different play styles of... Mario and Lego. I think this is one that is going to sell just fine without getting the boost from being on a hot toy list. Chris, and looking at the list, you know, we both know that this has been a pretty challenging year for the movie theater business. Sure has. And um, so I was wondering to when I looked at this, I wanted to find out what was happening as far as uh, movie-related tie-in products this year, and. What interested me was that the U.S. companies listed a total of 12 movie licenses. Now, these are not anything that came out this year, but uh, Disney Princesses, Frozen 2, Harry Potter, Jurassic World, Marvel, and Star Wars. They made up, I think, 12 items on the list, and uh, the combined list in the U.S. But what interested me was in the U.K., uh, there was only one movie tie-in, and that was a Star Wars item. Are the Brits just more wary than the Americans are? I think you hit the nail right on the head when you said that this has been an unusual year for movies. Obviously, something like Star Wars The Child, Hasbro's animatronic version is making all the lists because it's fifty nine ninety nine here in the U.S. It's going to sell out, and it's based on The Mandalorian, which is a streaming platform. I think that when you look at Marvel or... Harry Potter or any of these, these are classic brands. These tend to do very well even in a non-movie year, and that's what we're seeing right now. It's a non-movie year, but there's still a lot of interest in Harry Potter and all the different Marvel characters, and that's just a constant. Chris, in going through the list, I, I wanted to, to get a sense of what the average retail was on these lists. You know, when I averaged everything out, Target and Walmart were almost identical. And that was right around $80. Does that surprise you? I think it's a really interesting exercise because overall, we've seen average prices come down as technology's gotten more sophisticated. Things like For Real Friends have been less expensive. We're seeing things at the $60, $70 price point that might have been 80 or more a few years ago. So I think that the toys that make the lists are certainly the ones that the retailers are trying to push. And those are often the high-end toys, high-end, high-margin But at the same time, for years, really for about the last 
30 years, the average price of a toy in the U.S. is under $20. If there's any indication, it's that this year parents are going to spend a little bit more and they might splurge on things that they might not in another year. Chris, this has been very interesting. We're all going to be looking forward to see how the season ends up and just how good these retailers were at uh, fulfilling their prophecy. I think that they're going to do well. I think that they've been very effective at raising the awareness of some of these toys, especially the high-end toys and products. And as we keep saying, the hot toy is only hot if it's hot for your kid. The list may be a help, but it's certainly not a definitive guide. So there's lots more to come in the weeks ahead as we bear down on the holidays and we hope you'll stick with us this is the playground podcast i'm chris byrne with richard gottlieb and we are brought to you by global toy experts and the toy guy and we will see you next time